If you've got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to the Gospel according to John. We'll be in chapter 11. So John chapter 11. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Um, You might notice that uh, if you've been following with us over the last several weeks as we've been looking at the I am statements in the gospel according to John that we're going a little bit out of order. Uh, If you were with us on Christmas Eve, we looked at John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And today we are going backwards to John chapter 11. Uh, The reason for that is pretty simple. On Christmas Eve, we looked at six verses and today we're going to be looking at 53. And so we thought it would be better to, uh, to save that for a Sunday morning. But I know that that really bugs some of you that we're going out of order. Kind of bugged me and Ryan a little bit too, but what do you do? Um, everybody there in chapter 11? Got it? Okay. As I said, we'll be doing uh, the first 53 verses of this chapter. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read all of it. And it's going to take a few minutes. But you came to hear from God, not from me, right? Okay. So this is John chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, And her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, this is a very important chapter in the Gospel of John as we've progressed thus far. Uh, As I've said before, the Gospel of John kind of breaks neatly into two halves. So there's the first half that goes from chapter 1 to chapter 12, which is often called the book of the signs. And in this section, Jesus performs, most people count, seven unique signs or miracles that are all pointing to and validating the deity of Jesus, that they back up what Jesus has been saying in these I am statements. And, and this sign, the raising of Lazarus, is the last sign in the book of the signs. It's the seventh sign, and it's really the greatest sign and the most convincing sign. 
And chapter 11 and into chapter 12 form sort of a bridge. This is where the hinge starts turning because it's really in response to this last sign that the, the movement happens to Jerusalem where Jesus makes his last trip into Judea and is received in chapter 12 in the triumphal entry and then in chapter 13 starts his farewell discourse to his disciples and chapters 13 through the end of the book through chapter 21 are what are called the book of glory. In that we have Christ's glory revealed to his disciples in that discourse into his arrest into his crucifixion and then into his resurrection. So like I said, 11 and into chapter 12 form sort of the bridge in between these two sections. And this chapter, chapter 11, is one that's, that's probably very familiar to you. Even if you haven't grown up in church, I am sure you have heard the name Lazarus and the context of being raised from the dead. And, and I know that with a passage of scripture like this one that's very familiar, it can be hard for us to read it with eyes that see just how surprising it is. But that's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of take this paragraph by paragraph, and I'm going to look at certain details in this and just try to bring out, again, how surprising a passage this is, beginning with the first 16 verses when we see a surprising delay. So verse 1 says, A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Verse 2 says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's a reference to something in chapter 12 that's kind of preparatory for the triumphal entry and the burial of Jesus. So this was Mary's brother, Lazarus, who was ill. In verse 3, So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love... Is ill. And that's a really interesting phrase, he whom you love. That reminds us that there was so much that happened in the life of Jesus that wasn't written down in the Gospels. They only had so much paper, right? But clearly there is a, a deep relationship that Jesus has with this family that Mary and Martha say, Lord, Lazarus, who you love, is ill. We don't know what the context of that relationship looks like. We, uh, we do see Mary and Martha mentioned one other time in Luke chapter 10, but besides that, we just see here in this passage three different times where Lazarus and this family are described as someone whom Jesus loves. Look at verse 5. It says explicitly, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and that's what makes what happens next so surprising. Look at verse 6. Jesus loved this family so, that's a logical word there, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He delayed his response. Why? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 4? It says in verse 4, when Jesus heard it, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But we've read the whole passage, right? We know that this illness actually does lead to death. So what's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus says this does not lead ultimately to death. Jesus knows. He knew even before he got word from the messenger what was going to take place. He knew that Lazarus would die. 
but that a greater good would come about through his delay, through the tragic death of Lazarus and then through the miraculous raising of Lazarus. He knows that that would be better than if he had just responded to Mary and Martha's request, rushed to Bethany and prevented Lazarus from dying, which he could have done. No, Jesus says this is for the glory of God. In the book of John, when John talks about the glory of God, he doesn't often mean in the sense of praising God or giving God glory, although there's an aspect of that. But usually when John is talking about the glory of God, what he means is God revealing his glory to people, of God showing his glory, manifesting his glory, especially through his son, Jesus Christ. And for John... The main purpose of God revealing his glory, of God putting his glory on display in Jesus, is so that the people that see God's glory would respond to that glory in belief. Look at verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. And I don't want to lose sight of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in this situation, okay? They are like those who are in the ICU after a car accident. They are like a family that's just received a terminal cancer diagnosis. They're like parents that are seeing their child go more and more astray. They are like someone that has lost their job. They are like someone that has failed a semester. They are like someone that is going through something really, really hard. Something tragic even. And so what do they do? They do what, exactly what we should all do. They cry out to Jesus. In effect, Mary and Martha pray to Jesus. They say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Come help. Hurry. And Jesus doesn't answer their prayer. At least, not the way that they wanted him to. Not in the timing that they wanted him to. Jesus doesn't answer their prayer. Why? Because he loves them. Timothy Keller, who's a a pastor in New York City, he's written that God will either give us what we ask or he will give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that God knew. Jesus doesn't do what Mary and Martha ask, but instead Jesus, who is still in complete control, has perfect knowledge of this situation, Jesus acts in a way that brings about even greater glory, brings about even surer knowledge of himself and of his father, Jesus acts in a way that is ultimately going to bring about belief. And this is key. Belief leads to eternal life. This is why Jesus can say that he was glad that these events transpired the way that they did because it will give belief, which will give eternal life. And eternal life is the greatest gift that God could ever give to anyone. Do you believe that? Eternal life is greater than any other gift that God could give to us, even if it comes through suffering. And this is the other key here that we see from this passage, that the way that God lovingly reveals his glory is often surprising in that it comes through suffering. 
and that it comes through delay. It comes through seemingly unanswered prayers, and, and that's, that's hard. That's mysterious. We, we don't always know quite what to do that, but we do know from so many places in the scriptures and even from many of your own testimonies that it is in fact through suffering that God most clearly glorifies himself, isn't it? It is through hard circumstances that we have the clearest picture, that our faith is strengthened, that we have belief leading to eternal life. And ultimately, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what kind of suffering, if, if you lose a loved one to illness, if you yourself become ill, if you lose your job, if your marriage crumbles, no matter what happens in this life, if you have eternal life, you still have everything. And so it is God's love, even if it's through suffering, to bring about and guarantee your eternal life, which is what he's doing in this passage. Verse 14, again, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And if we had more time, we could unpack this interesting conversation that Jesus has with the disciples about walking in the light, and did you see the reference to the light of the world in that? Um, we don't have time to go into all of that, but, but it's pretty obvious what the point of this passage is. When Jesus says, let's go, let's go to Lazarus, the disciples know that he's walking into his death. And they're right. As I said, this is the turn. This is the last trip that Jesus makes. He is going to go to Judea. He's going to go two miles away from Jerusalem into the hornet's nest. He will be arrested. And he will be crucified. And Jesus knows that's coming too. When he says, let's go. He knows that to raise Lazarus from the dead means to give up his own life. And he will do that. Why? Because he loves him, and he loves us. He's going to do the same thing for us, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. In verses 17 to 27, we see a surprising hope. Now, when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's hard not to hear in what Martha says to Jesus a note of despair, right? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet that's a statement of faith, isn't it? My brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, you could have, you could have done something. She's got faith in Jesus. And so she goes on to say, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know this, she says. She has likely seen some of the signs that Jesus has been doing throughout his ministry up to this point. If she hasn't seen them herself, she has heard the tell of them from Jesus' disciples that witnessed it. Maybe she's heard about other instances where Jesus has raised people from the dead. They're not recorded in the book of John, but they are in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter. We do know from Luke that Martha has heard Jesus' teaching. And she has probably recognized, yes, in, in him is the words of eternal life. So we see in Martha, more than really anybody else in this book, faith 
she is convinced that Jesus is from the Father. So she says, even now, I know that you can do a miracle. And she's right, isn't she? Jesus, Jesus can do a miracle, but I think her faith, at least to me, her faith is deeper even than that because I think Martha also knows that she's not entitled to a miracle. This is important. I think she knows that Jesus can raise her brother, but that even if he doesn't, she still has faith in Jesus. Because there were lots of people who died at this time that Jesus didn't raise. And so she knows, yes, Jesus can, but he doesn't have to. And that if he didn't, that would be hard. But she has a faith that's even deeper than God just cleaning up her circumstances miraculously. She's got a, a deeper hope, a more certain hope. And that's true faith. And we see this coming out in verse 23. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again again in the resurrection on the last day. And this has always been, as I read this, one of the most surprising statements in this whole passage. And it's so easy to overlook because we want to forward on to Jesus' I am statement and to the miracle and to all these things. But, but don't miss this, okay? Don't miss what she's, what she's saying. She says, she hears Jesus say, your brother will rise again. And what does she think Jesus is saying? This is an absolutely perfect response. She thinks Jesus, who is her rabbi, who teaches her the scriptures of God, she thinks Jesus is calling her to put her hope in the Old Testament promises of God. That's what she hears Jesus saying. She hears Jesus saying, Martha, your brother is dead. And this is going to be hard, and you're going to have to wait a long time, but your brother will rise again in the last day. And you need to put your hope in that. That's what Martha thinks Jesus is saying. And she's right. She's thinking about Old Testament prophecies like in Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, Daniel says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or she's thinking of Isaiah 26 verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Martha has a hope in the resurrection. This is a hope that was shared by all of the conservative Jews in her day. And in reality, this is the exact same hope that we have. We have it more fully developed. We have the New Testament. But she's already got these promises from the prophets. She knows that for all of the saints who have put their faith in God, even though they die... And their body will be laid in the ground that their soul will go to be with God. That they will continue to live as a disembodied soul with God in heaven. But they also know that in the last day, in the end, when God comes and he fixes everything and he makes everything new, what he's going to do is he's going to raise all of those bodies from the dead. Okay? Your body raised from the dead. He's going to take your soul Put them back together. Only your body is going to be way better than the body you have right now because it's not going to be a body that gets old. It's not going to be a body that gets hurt. It's going to be an imperishable body, an eternal body. And we will live in our bodies and souls reunited with God in a new heaven and a new earth. That's Martha's hope. That's eternal life. That's our hope. 
And that's a, that's a wonderful hope. And so she thinks Jesus is saying, Martha, put your hope in that. Lazarus is dead, but Lazarus believed in God, and Lazarus will be raised from the dead, and so will you. You and Lazarus will be together again in the last day. Put your hope in the resurrection. And so that's what Martha says. My hope is in the resurrection. And then what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait until that last day. It's right here in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe Martha, that everything that was said in the prophets about the resurrection finds their fulfillment in me. Do you believe that they are the, that I am the one that they are pointing to? Do you believe that in me are fulfilled all of the promises of God? Do you believe that I am the substance of your end times hope? Do you believe that I am the greatest good in the midst of your suffering? And what does she say? Yes. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And she's right. And, and this is what's always been so surprising to me, is that she knows this with so much confidence. And she's going off of like two verses in the prophet's. She hasn't seen Lazarus raised from the dead. She certainly hasn't seen Jesus raised from the dead, which is the, the surest fulfillment of Jesus being the resurrection. She hasn't read Paul. She hasn't read John. She hasn't read Peter. She's just got God's word in a, in a few texts that are kind of hard to understand in the Old Testament. But she says, I believe it. And I believe you, Jesus. Man, what's my excuse? Now, if I was writing the book of John, I would have written it with Jesus making that statement, I'm the resurrection and the life, I would have written Martha's response, and then I would have gone right to Jesus, going to Lazarus' tomb and saying, come out, proving that he is what he says he is. But John didn't write it like that. John decided to include one section in between there, verses 28 to 37, and I'm so glad he did, because in that we see a surprising grief. Verse 28 says that Martha goes to tell Mary that Jesus has come, that he's looking for her. And Mary jumps up. She runs to where Jesus is. A big crowd follows her. Verse 32, it's interesting. Mary says the exact same thing to Jesus that Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She has the same faith that Martha did. And then verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Several years ago, my wife and I had a friend who had just suffered a miscarriage. And we went to go meet with her in a coffee shop. And we just asked her how she was doing, wanted to check on her, and it was, it was obvious that she was devastated. I mean, as anybody would be. 
But what was also obvious was that she was trying so hard not to be devastated. She was, she was fighting back her tears, and I remember she just kept on saying, I know Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. What does that say? Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is an amazing verse. Okay, if you don't know this verse, write it down, memorize it. Read really the whole chapter of Romans 8 is all about our hope, our end times hope. And Romans 8.28 sums up what we've been talking about for the first two points of this sermon. Okay, that all things, good things and bad things, work together for good. But we have to wait to see that fulfillment. We have to wait until we get to the end and we look back and we see how everything works together. But it's a promise that, yes, all things, even hard things, do work together for good. It's an incredible promise, even in the midst of suffering, even when you've had a miscarriage. And so my friend kept on saying, I know Romans 8.28, but she was sad. She was grieving. And I think she felt like her grief meant she didn't really believe Romans 8.28. And we said to our friend, look, Romans 8.28, that's a good verse, that's a good place to go. Let's set Romans 8.28 right here, and let's put into that mix John 11.35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus felt her pain. Jesus felt that sadness. Jesus saw Mary weeping. He saw the crowds weeping. He saw the the tomb where his friend had sat in his deathbed wondering what was going to happen and then ultimately succumbed to death. He sees all of that pain, the curse of sin, death, and the hurt that comes to every human being who lives in this fallen creation. He looked and saw all of that and it broke his heart. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In the Greek, that's emphatic language. It's trying to express the great depth. It's even got a twinge of anger to it. The pain that Jesus felt when he was looking at the wages of sin being worked out in this crowd. And that's surprising, isn't it? Because Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't even have to wait until the end. He's going to see it in like 10 minutes, but he weeps because God hates sin. Sin makes God sad. Death makes God sad. Your suffering makes God sad, and he acknowledges that. Jesus came in and experienced it himself in a profound way. Your God knows what it means to be sad. And what does this mean for us? If God is sad when we're suffering, it means it's okay for us to be sad when we're suffering. It gives us permission to say, I know Romans 8.28. I know that all things work together for good, but I don't know how this does. And I'm just sad. And in that, God says, I know. I'm sad too. 
It's okay to be sad. It's, it's actually this, this sadness, it's this hurt, this curse of sin that is the reason that I came in the first place because this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to lose loved ones. We're not supposed to sin. And I want to fix this. I'm deeply troubled in my heart, and so I'm coming to make everything right. I love what we sang in, in Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow where? As far as the curse is found. But there is a curse. And God acknowledges it, so we can too. Verse 35, Jesus weeps. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's a reference to a sign that Jesus did in in chapter 9. He he opened that man's eyes. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? And then verses 38 through 44 that we see that Jesus was able to do much more than just keep a man from dying. In these verses, we see a surprising sign that, as I said, validates everything that's just been spoken up to this point. It's one thing for Jesus to just say, I am the resurrection and the life. But he backs it up with this sign. In verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. You see that? He comes to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I don't know if you noticed this, but that's actually the second mention of Lazarus having been dead four days. A lot of scholars think that that's actually in reference to uh, a tradition at this time, or really more like a superstition that was passed around um, by the Jewish teachers that said that when someone died that there was that separation of body and soul, but that the soul of that person would, would kind of like hang around the corpse for three days. And he was hoping at some point to be resuscitated or in, to enter back into that, that body. But when you read what the rabbis said about this, they said that after the fourth day, the soul would see the body's appearance change. That's how they wrote it. What does that mean? They'd see the body start to decompose. And at that point, the soul knew there's not a chance. And then he would go off to depart and be with God in the afterlife. Now, that's utter nonsense. Okay, that's, a, that's not in the Bible anywhere. I don't know where they got, got that from. But that was a commonly held belief. And whether or not that's exactly what they had in mind, we do see that the logic of that is obvious. Mary, or Martha says to Jesus, Lord, we can't roll away that stone. He's been dead for four days. His body has started to decompose. By this point, there will be an odor. Or as the King James Version famously says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> Which is actually closer to the Greek. He stinks. He's dead. He's, he's decomposing. He's dead, dead. And that four-day Reference, I think it's just really interesting, especially when you go back and where it said Jesus waited two days. It seems that Jesus actually waited just long enough to time his arrival in Bethany to exactly the moment when Lazarus had been dead for four days. Okay, Jesus didn't want there to be any question about what was going on here. That body was dead, dead. It stinketh. 
And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed that I am the resurrection and the life? So verse 41, they take away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He says a prayer, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Like I said, this is, this is a famous story. Lazarus is like a household name in our culture, but just, just try and enter into this situation. Try and imagine yourself in this story and what's going on. Okay, feel the tension. They've rolled away the stone. And Jesus walks up and he looks into this dark cave. He says, Lazarus, come out. And they're all waiting. I mean, there's a hush over the whole scene. They're all looking into this cave Wondering what's going to happen. Is this guy Jesus crazy? They lean in. And they start hearing a shuffling sound. They hear muffled footsteps. They see verse 44. The man who had died come out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Imagine what that scene would be like. I mean, there would be gasps. There would be screams. There would be rejoicing. There would be worship. This dead man, their beloved Lazarus, has come out of the tomb. That would be shocking to them. And don't fall into the trap, okay, of saying, well, well we're 21st century Americans. We have science, we know that people don't really come back from the dead. This is silly first century Near Eastern nonsense. No, they knew people don't come back from the dead just as much as we do. They said as much. He stinketh. And Jesus worked a miracle. This is surprising. This is shocking. It's from these verses through the next couple of chapters, we see that it was this miracle that was the most convincing sign that Jesus did, that after this, there was just whole crowds of people turning to faith in Jesus because he raised a man who had been dead for four days. It was a surprising sign. And I, and I use that word. That's the word that John uses, sign, not miracle. Because a sign points to something. That's why John keeps on saying that. And this is, this is important. Because a lot of people will read the Bible, they'll read the New Testament, they'll see these miracles, and they think that it's about the miracle. They think it's about God doing those signs and wonders as great as they are. But that would be like thinking it's about the billboard and not the restaurant that it's pointing to. If you had the billboard but you never ate the restaurant, you don't really get it. You don't really have it, okay? These miracles are not about the miracle. That's why we don't sit and think that we're entitled to see God raising people from the dead. That's not, it's not really it, okay? It's about what the sign points to. And in this case, what does that sign point to? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Only the resurrection and the life could walk up to a tomb and say, Lazarus, come out. Somebody has famously said that if Jesus didn't say Lazarus come out, if he had just said come out, then all of the dead people would have come out. 
Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he proves it with these, this sign. And there's, there's an important distinction that needs to be made here, too, that when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and it's a sign that points to the resurrection hope that is fulfilled in Jesus, Lazarus did not come out in his resurrection body, like I was talking about, that imperishable, glorified body. Lazarus came out in his regular body, the body that he had when they laid him in the tomb. This was just a, a picture of the resurrection. We know, I, I hope Lazarus had a nice, long life, but we know that he died again. And what that was like for him must have been a trip, right? Like, I've been here before. It's a sign pointing to the deeper hope, the resurrection hope that we have in Christ. Remember verse 40, Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's the glory of God. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus said in verse 25, whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Case in point, Lazarus. I can raise Lazarus from the dead. I can raise you from the dead. And many believe. Many believe in Jesus, like I said, but not, not everyone. And so we get in the last few verses of this section, verses 45 to 53, a surprising gospel. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in them, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, uh, the Sanhedrin, okay, which was like the Jewish senate and Supreme Court, and executive branch, all rolled into one, okay? So these are the leaders of the nation. They go, and they told the Sanhedrin what had happened, and they said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. And I love that they don't deny it. They, they, even they, like, these are the enemies of Jesus, and they say, look, he's raising people from the dead. What are we going to do? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away our place and our nation. And they, they were kind of right. They knew that all of these people turning to Jesus, they were turning to Jesus as the Christ, which was another king. And they were right that the Romans would not abide to there being another king in Judea. So the Romans would come in and they would kill Everyone, so they think, but, but it's also right to hear in that that they have probably pretty selfish motives. I don't think that they're really concerned about the Romans coming in and killing everybody in their nation. I think they're really worried about them losing the power that they have. The Romans are going to come and take away their independence and their power. And then in verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. To paraphrase what Caiaphas is saying, look guys, kill this guy so that the nation can be spared. It's better that we kill this guy than you lose your power. Kill this guy. That's an expedient political decision but there's a profound irony in what Caiaphas said. 
He doesn't get it. He's, he's just being a selfish, greedy politician. But John says that there was prophetic, sovereign irony in what he said. Verse 51, Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord. But being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And this is the biggest surprise of all, okay? Jesus has just declared and proven that he is the resurrection and the life. And we get the clearest foreshadowing of his impending death. But how does, how does John interpret Jesus' death? Again, in verse 51, Jesus would die for the nation. That's substitutionary language. This is the Lamb of God, as we saw in John chapter 1. The Lamb of God offered as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners to take away the sin of the world. So this is the way that Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life, that Jesus secures for us our resurrection and our life, not by just having mastery over death, but actually succumbing to death himself. In the next chapter, in chapter 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, lifted up on the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the plan all along. This is what Jesus came to do. He knows that this is coming. He knows that it is the hour prepared for him by the Father to die for the nation. And not just the nation. Did you see that? For the nation and all of the children of God. So that means all of the Gentiles too. It's not just Jews. It's everybody that would believe in Jesus. They would have eternal life through Jesus' sacrificial death on their part. But that eternal life only comes through Jesus' death. That's a surprising gospel. The one who has power over death must die. And so if there was ever any doubt... To come back to that first point, if there was ever any doubt that God could work out good through evil circumstances, through suffering, if there was ever any doubt in your mind if God can work through bad things to bring about better goods, you need to look no farther than the cross. The cross was the most evil moment in history, prepared beforehand by God, and it was by the cross. It was by Christ dying, dying in your place. Dying the death that you deserve to die. That's, that's the point. Death, as we've been thinking about this passage with funerals and, and stinking bodies, that death, that's not some external thing that just happens to us. That's not some naturalistic circumstance. That is the fruit of sin in each of us. That is the curse of sin in each of us. And God looked at our sin, looked at the fruit that came out of that sin, looked at death, and it troubled his heart. And so God sent his son. Jesus came and he said, I will live sinlessly. I will be the lamb of God. And I will go to Judea, even knowing what's awaiting me there. 
I will be arrested. I will be crucified. I will be taken down off of that cross. I will be wrapped in burial cloths. I will be laid in a tomb for you. The death that you deserved to die. And I will be raised. Three days later, I will rise from my grave. I will walk out of my own tomb because I am the resurrection and the life. And death cannot hold me in that tomb. And Jesus was raised in a very different body than the body that Lazarus had. That's why this is so important. Jesus was raised in his resurrection body. Jesus was raised in his imperishable body. He was the end times hope of the resurrection crashing into our reality today. And he is our certain hope that there is a resurrection, an eternal resurrection. And if we have put our trust in Jesus, if we have said, yes, I am a sinner, I deserve to die, Christ has died for me and Christ was raised and by faith I am united to Christ in a sense I'm already raised that's what John says that eternal life is ours already but we have a certain hope that just like Christ walked out of his tomb in an imperishable resurrection body so will we because we have believed in the resurrection and the life and whoever believes though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, so I, I just ask you the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world? Do you believe that he did die for your sins? Do you believe that he was raised on the third day? Do you believe this? Because if you do, then death has no power over you. You are already united with the resurrected Christ. Even if your body dies, you will never stop being united with God. Your soul will go to be with God until that day that he calls you out of your tomb. You will be raised in an imperishable body like Jesus. And in that day, when you are raised, every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. Everything that you're suffering through right now, you will be able to look back on from the perspective of eternity and say, ah, oh, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you have hope right now in the resurrection to come because Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, died for you, and Christ, the resurrection and the life, was raised from the dead. Amen? Let's pray. God, what amazing, surprising hope that we have. Because you are raised from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us with that hope, that you would give us belief in that hope. Help our unbelief. Help us to see that there will be a resurrection and you proved it in Christ. Help us to see that everything will make sense, everything will work out for good. Help us to endure through our sufferings in this life. God, I pray if there's anyone in here that hasn't believed in Jesus, God, please show your glory to them. Even through these words, through this testimony of this sign that you did, this, this truth that you raised Lazarus from the dead, Lord, help them to believe that, to believe you and to have life.
And we ask this all in your name. Amen.